Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast, boys and girls, where I am still the aforementioned Chase Thomas, where I am coming to you live from Knoxville, Tennessee. On today's edition of the Chase Thomas Podcast, I'll be joined by John Taylor of Fangraphs.com to talk all things Major League Baseball, Carl Crawford's uh, Hall of Fame case, if there is one, uh, John Lester retiring officially from Major League Baseball, and uh, the Nationals' pursuit of Juan Soto's younger brother and all the ethical uh, questions surrounding all of that. Uh, plus, 2021 Detroit Tigers season review, their signing of Javier Baez before uh, before the CBA expired, all that good stuff, what to expect from the Tigers in the AL Central in 2022. Plus, we've got the sports renaissance woman uh, on Yellow Jackets, the hit show on Showtime to talk all things Yellow Jackets, up to uh season one episode nine so if you've not already caught up make sure you uh hit pause and that comes up because we will be talking about everything that has happened heading into sunday's finale very exciting very exciting stuff uh and brian baston of on the forecheck for all things nashville predators we talk about them being in first place in the division how they've exceeded expectations to this point in the year all that good stuff can they keep it going preds out west um, before we get started with today's show, I would also like to mention how you can support this very program. It starts with leaving a quick five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify if that is your preferred app of choice for listening to this very podcast. Go visit chasethomaspodcast.com for access to all of my previous episodes and make sure to subscribe to sportsrenaissanceman.substack.com. Uh, That's the newsletter you'll get uh, all my articles, all my emails, everything uh, about what's going on with me. Sports Renaissance Man newsletter. Uh, So go there, type in your email, that easy. As always, you can actually email the program at chasethomaspodcast at gmail.com. Again, that is chasethomaspodcast at gmail.com. And make sure to go ahead and hit that follow button on twitter.com, twitter.com slash chase double underscore Thomas. And then uh, like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash chase thomas writer all right uncle darren let's go chase thomas pod the chase thomas podcast um my nephew needs me to record see i hate i already hate it i hate it all right hello and welcome back to a, another episode of the chase thomas podcast where i am still the aforementioned chase thomas and that guy up there in new york city of fangraphs.com is still the one and only john taylor john good evening sir how are you I am doing well. How about yourself? Not too bad. Not too bad. Uh, John, do you know what it's time for? Is it is it National Pastime Time? It is National Pastime Time. You're right. And it's easy to say even faster than that. The um, National Pastime... <laughs> just do it like that so people know it's pastime time. Hmm. Well, hey, oh, you know what I should <laughs> I think say? I just like, no. <laughs> <laughs> no rebuttal to that. It's just no. <laughs> Do you know what's funny? Um, so one of my good friends, uh, we uh, back home. I, I was talking to him on the phone last week, um, and he uh, he mentioned like off the top, like just off the rip uh, in our conversation, uh, asking me about a, a certain word on this particular podcast that I could not say on the spot while I was looking at it. And he he used it in a sentence, and I I just I I was I was overwhelmed because I was, a I didn't know he listened that intently to this podcast, and b 
now I'm concerned that uh, a lot of people think I have a speech impediment or that I have no clue how to pronounce that particular word. I mean, eccentricities is a... (laughs) Which is a butcher pronunciation-wise because of all the various weirdnesses that exist within it. Um, but hey, look, you got a dedicated listener, if nothing else. Well, see, now I want to, like, I don't know if you're like this, John, but as a voracious reader, I I feel like there's a lot of words out there that I've read a handful of times, never used in uh in my just personal life or in my professional life uh, out loud or never heard someone else utter it out loud that I wonder how many words are just stored in my, uh, my big dumb brain that uh, I've been mispronouncing in my head for, for a number of years and just have no idea. Well, I mean, I mean, it's a thing like I'm sure everyone has at least one word that they just mispronounce all the time without even knowing it. I was just rewatching. There was a season two episode of Arrested Development where Joe just Every time he tries to do the word circumvent, or, see, I just did it. <laughs> Cir- circumvent. He comes. I, I think it's at one point he calls it circumvent. Um, but yeah, it's, language is just is is full of mispronunciation opportunities, if only because so little of English pronunciation actually makes any damn sense. Because so little about English spelling makes any damn sense. Bees. Job's not on board. <laughs> I uh, I could probably recite one through three verbatim at this point. I've fallen asleep to Arrested Development. Uh, we've taken a break. We've pivoted to Seinfeld um, to fall asleep to. But um, I, I'm pretty confident I could probably, for any particular episode, uh, recite uh, every line from every character. That, that was so dedicated. I think that's still my all-time favorite comedy. So when I saw you were tweeting about revisiting... Uh, season two. There's nothing that puts me in a better mood than Arrested Development early seasons. Yeah, and I, I think I made the point online. There, there are a fair number of jokes and bits and and whatnot on that show. That you know, it's wild to think about that show is 20 years old. Yeah, like it is ancient by by TV standards. Um, so understandably, uh, some some chunks of it have just not aged anything approaching well, as pretty much any comedy that is. Uh, older than like five years it just does not age well or there are parts of any comedy that don't age well but a lot of it holds up very very well in part because they just <laughs> the people mitchell Horowitz and the, and the people who created arrest development made the very smart decision to be like let's just go get some of the funniest people alive and just put them all in one show together and just let them rip off each other constantly and surprisingly that works really really well it's amazing when you just hire a bunch of very funny people and just let them do their thing what you end up with is just a very funny show I know, I know, I'm, I know, I'm, I'm, I'm breaking a, a whole new ground for people. You know, Arrested <laughs> Development is a funny show, but um, it, it is really impressive how much of it does hold up, and just, just because of just how simply funny everyone involved is, or how just and how well everyone in it works. Like it's just like you re- go rewatch that show now. Everything Jessica Walter does is a riot. She is perfect in that role. She's giving a a like an A plus performance all the way through, like. <laughs> it's just crazy how many people they get to do stuff like that. Um, just from main cast, even just one-off characters, like the delightful Gene Parmesan. Gene! Oh, man. It, uh, yeah, you, gotta, you gotta find some way to like get in the Jessica Walter shriek there. Mm-hmm. 
Oh man, I I miss I miss that show. Like it's it's so great. Maybe I might uh, add that back into the rotation. There's just so so many things about that show that it's just an absolute delight. The perfect comedy, um, which naturally brings us back to national pastime. I think there's actually a pretty uh pretty pretty defined pretty pretty large crossover between Arrested Development fans and baseball fans. I, I'm gonna go ahead and yeah, assume that, that, that feels like a pretty that feels like a lot of Venn diagram overlap. Yes. I would think so. Um, John, today, National Pastime. I really love checking this out every day, and there's a lot of different ones, and sometimes it's harder for me to choose which one to pick. Um, but this particular one I thought was fascinating. So today's uh, today in baseball history, um, quote, an anonymous bidder purchases the historic 70th home run, which just reading that the 70th home run ball hit by Cardinal slugger Mark McGuire on his final swing on the final day of the season. The $3.5 million price tag uh, far surpasses the previous record paid for a baseball topping the 126,500 spent last year to obtain a ball that Babe Ruth hit for the first homer at Yankee stadium. What do you think? It's, it's funny that that ball is probably now worth so little. <laughs> yeah. Like at the at the time, like, because you were, I was alive for the 96 home run chase, or 96, sorry, uh, 98, you were as well, correct? Alive? Or at least cognizant. Yeah, I, I was seven. Okay, there you go. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, you were young enough that I don't know how, like, how oh, I thought you were attention to it. Okay. I was wondering yeah. how old you thought I was. No, like, I was, I was, I mean, I was 11, so I remember mm-hmm. it, but it's one of those, like, it's one of those first serious baseball memories for me where it's just like paying attention to this thing day in and day out. Mm-hmm. And all, I remember all the, the cutaways to McGuire and Sosa and like, you know, all of their at bats were live once they got to a certain point. And, you know, I still remember watching all the, all the home runs as they went and like this huge, like, and I, I remember too, you couldn't get away from that, from that story. It was everywhere and all the newspapers and the TV and the radio. And it was the only sports thing people were talking about. Except for, I think, the aside from the Bulls, I think, and Michael Jordan. And now, like, you, you think back on it, it's like, yeah, that, that not not just in, leaving aside the, the steroid shit that obviously colored so much of it now, but just the fact that, like, then Barry Bonds went on to demolish everything in his path in, that, in the process, which is baseball has become such a home run oriented sport over the course of those last 25 years that, like, you think back on what was once this historic, crazy moment, and you're like, that probably doesn't mean a whole lot of much to anybody anymore. It's it's just very weird to think about this thing that was so huge when it happened, and now you look back on you're like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. Like I genuinely had forgotten about like if you had asked me before this, how many home runs did Mark McGuire hit in his in his record breaking season in total? I probably would have forgotten it was seventy. I certainly would not have been able to tell you like where it happened, who it happened against, like any of the identifying information about. It, despite the fact I almost certainly watched it happen live. Mm-hmm. It's just it's just it's amazing how little that particular moment has held on in our, at least in terms of, I guess, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm overstating. I mean, I can only speak for myself, but it just feels to me like that home run chase and that entire moment, they really just, they they don't have any lasting real value anymore. I guess beyond whatever sentimental value attached to, I guess, more the concept of like that. I know it it got people back into baseball after the strike, but for me, it really was a formative baseball experiences is being there for the 98 home run chase. Like, I don't, I don't know if I'd be a, a baseball fan or at least the, the depths of baseball fan I am without that happening. But it's weird to think that the event itself is now something where you're just kind of like, Oh yeah, that happened. I totally forgot about that. I was 
more focused on creating my own home run magic with Pablo Sanchez and backyard baseball, to be completely honest at that age. That's fair. That's entirely fair. The amount of hours that I put into uh, backyard baseball and roller coaster tycoon is uh, it's just got to be preposterous. Like the amount of time and the amount of effort I spent building the best backyard baseball team and the best roller coaster tycoon theme parks on my uh, old gateway desktop. uh, It's it's preposterous. Yeah, I was more of a roller coaster tycoon guy than I, I. I never played backyard baseball as a kid. I, huh. I'm not sure why. I just I never came across it somehow. But I was always more of a roller coaster tycoon kid anyway. I uh, I'm pretty sure I got all of them. All those Hasbro games. I think that was like the the way my mother would get me to enjoy Costco. Uh, Costco trips was because they had this video game section when you first walk into the left. Uh, I still remember it vividly of like rushing over and then just going and perusing all the all the computer games in those gigantic containers and being like, oh, Carmen San Diego, oh, Pajama Sam, uh, who else was in there? Um, I mean, obviously backyard baseball. Oh, Spy Fox that I just put in all kinds of time on that one as well. But those were was that the, the one where you learned letters or something? I, which one? I vaguely remember something. Like Spy Fox? No, 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 no. Neither, Spy no, Fox I'm think, was. I'm sorry. I'm thinking of- <laughs> I'm thinking of Reader Rabbit. I'm sorry. Very different, only, John. Only 90s kids wore this. <laughs> so I did, how did this turn into a BuzzFeed listicle? <laughs> do they still do that? I don't know. I haven't seen a BuzzFeed I, I listicle no, in a I long time. What BuzzFeed does outside of screwing the people out who used to work there out of their stock options, but mm. yeah, I, I can't. I can't tell you. Yeah, that was a that was a big part of our our life. Um, I think they got replaced by Clickhole for just being awesome because Clickhole cracks me up. No one in my personal life gets Clickhole that I'll send it to the Sports Renaissance win or whoever. And like there at least once a day, those articles there put me in tears. Like there's at least one article a day that just sends me to tears. Am I alone there? Do you get it? Do you like it? Oh, I love I love Clickhole. Okay. Um, Clickhole is one of the funnier things on the earth. Yeah, I'm, I'm okay. a big Clickhole fan. Um, big time, big time, clickhole fan. <laughs> big clickhole guy, John Taylor. I, I just like saying, I just like saying clickhole. <laughs> well, don't forget, folks. You can follow John on twitter.com at ja taylor. Go support fangraphs.com and all the good folks over there, like Jay Jaffe, who will get into his latest MVP case piece uh, on this very feed. So, if you're not a Fangraphs member, go ahead and uh, become one today. Fangraphs.com. Uh, make sure to follow myself at chase underscore thomas. And if you like listening to John and myself talk Major League Baseball on this very podcast every week. Leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any email questions, any Major League Baseball questions that you might have for us, uh, you can email us at chasethomaspodcast at gmail.com. John, let's start. Your old friend, John Lester, he's officially done. He officially retired. So what, uh, what will you remember most about Lester, not just with the Red Sox, but I guess uh, in uh, in conjunction with the Red Sox and his just Major League Baseball career as a whole? Uh, he was one of those dudes where I think the ter- the phrase dogged cussedness just kind of hangs on him. He was really one, like, he's one of those guys where, and I'm sure that, you know, if you've been online to, uh, on Wednesday, or if you were online on Wednesday, you saw when everyone was talking about it, but that everyone really hailed him as a competitor, as a as a as a guy who would you know is very team first, very like you know he would ne- he always wanted the ball in the biggest situations. He always wanted to be the the guy, and you know that's true of a lot of starters. They're all kind of crazy in that regard. They're all at like 
hyper like the hyper alpha types who just want to like I, I made a joke to someone the other uh, a few weeks ago that like i'm pretty sure every major league starter is convinced that they could be a fighter pilot <laughs> and not just a fighter pilot but a really good one like i'm sure if you asked maybe not max scherzer but like there are definitely some guys who are convinced they could if, like if they had the proper training and, and credentials they could fly f-16 we just saw a teenage person. girl on yellow jackets think she could do the same thing I haven't watched that show, but oh, there's a, there's John! Particular... I know, I know, I know. John, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. Don't you got to do it. it. You got to do it. But I'll give you my Showtime password. I don't care. You got to get into there's it. There's a, there's a, well, I guess I mean that makes sense though with the fighter pilot thing with with the teen girls. Like, there's a particular confidence and arrogance that teenagers and and starting pitchers share. Just that in that belief in invulnerability and invincibility. And I don't know. I don't think Lester was necessarily that way. I think he had too many things happen to him in his life, in particular the uh, the bout of leukemia he had that he he managed to overcome to to make him think that he was truly in in any sense invincible or invulnerable. But he always gave that energy of you know just he had that for as much as you know not to put not to put a value on it. He had that vibe of just I'm a number one starter. I'm here to kick your ass. And there were times when he legit like. I mentioned online, but one of the most one of the things I enjoyed the most at, at, when he when he you know first began his career was watching him make that turn from a hyper control and command challenge, but really promising lefty to someone who just all of a sudden could throw strikes with consistency and confidence. He it just like it's really fun watching a pitching prospect turn into the guy you think that they're going to turn into, and there were so many of those moments for him. With me, I think just coming back to pitch in the 2007 World Series, being you know the clincher in the 2013 World Series, uh, the no hitter he threw against Kansas City, like just obviously the I, I'm not a Cubs fan, so you know doesn't mean as much to me as to others, but just the the enormous role he played uh, on that 2016 Cubs team and in, and in making that franchise legitimate again, like he was always there for big moments, you know he was always I think really the one time. I, A's fan, if there are any A's fans listening to this, they're probably like, yeah, he always really showed up in the <laughs> moments, didn't he? Fair. Like, he was a disaster in that AL wildcard game, but that AL wildcard game was also one of the silliest games that's ever been played. I don't blame anyone for being a mess in it. From 2013 onward in the postseason, John Lester was automatic. He was one of the best pitchers that you could ask for in those scenarios. And I think Red Sox and Cubs fans both, because he, you know, he helped deliver three titles in total, two for Boston, one for Chicago will always have that with him and always have that connection with him and always have that soft spot for him. I will always argue, I don't care what the numbers say. I don't, I don't even bother looking at them. Letting him walk was one of the biggest mistakes John Henry ever made as Red Sox owner. Just flat out bar none. They never should have let him walk. I don't care what the rest of his career would have looked like in, in Boston or that maybe going to Chicago. I don't care. I don't care. Letting him walk was a huge mistake. I've always felt that. I've always missed Lester since. I'm Really, really glad he gets to go out in a way that he feels is right. Like, obviously, he did not pitch particularly well last year. He hasn't pitched particularly well for the last few seasons as you know he's gotten older, as the mileage on his arm has caught up to him, as his fastball has slowed down. But he was a big part of St. Louis making that nice second half run. He was a big part of them making the postseason in the first place. You know, he got to make it one last time, which is nice. Obviously, he goes out with the three World Series rings, no hitter, five All Star appearances a handful of top five Cy Young appearances, including second place in 2016 behind uh, Jake Arrieta. Does that all add up to Hall of Fame? No, I can't imagine that Lester is, you know, particularly close. And you look at the advanced numbers of Jay Jaffe's jaw stat, 
he's very, very short on pretty much all the major metrics. A lot of that, I imagine, is uh, a lot of that. I imagine is just that the advanced numbers themselves don't hold up super great. I mean, we're talking about someone where you know a career ERA of three sixty six, which is fine. A career ERA plus of one seventeen, which is fine. I mean, these are fine numbers. These are, I mean, I shouldn't say fine. I'm sorry. They're very good numbers, but they don't have that level of greatness that the Hall of Fame usually has. He was never a big strikeout pitcher in total. He had a few years where he, you know, he did have the strikeouts. Um, not a huge amount of, you know, shy of 3,000 innings, which is great. Um, 200 wins. The win total obviously doesn't matter as much uh, between Pedro Martinez and Roy Halladay getting inducted. But I think the thing that, I mean, I think Hall of Fame voters, when it comes to starters, look at it two ways. It's either the peak value of someone like a Halliday or a Martinez of just how much better they were than everyone else, or the consistent long-term value of a guy like, I mean, this is selling Greg Maddox short, but in part of the value of a guy like Greg Maddox who just hung around forever. Lester is more on that side of things, but he simply doesn't have the the same kind of, he was more consistent, I think, than than consistently great. And that'll almost certainly keep him out of the Hall of Fame, but I mean, to me, who cares? Red Sox fans don't care. Cubs fans don't care. It should be in both the franchises' halls of fame, in my, in my mind. What if uh, we do a counter by? What if we do this? Because Kurt Schilling was a Hall of Famer on the on the mound. What if we just substitute Lester in there? We just give him his spot. I'm fine with that. I'm fine with that. If you like Kurt Schilling, get to replace him with someone of your choice. It, it's funny. You look at the Gray Inc. and Hall of Fame monitor and standards uh, numbers, and they're much more favorable to him. In part because he has all the big nice check marks like uh, the no hitter, the three World Series wins, the really good postseason performance, uh, the top, the, the few. I mean, he never won a Cy Young award, but he has three top five finishes. It, it's just the overall numbers. Like I said, it's more great. It's more very good than great. You know, the oft mentioned Hall of Very Good, John Lester would 100% be in there. But yeah, I, you know, hats off to an amazing career for, you know, a guy who. I mean, really, I remember seeing him as a rookie and just thinking, he's great, but man, he, he doesn't learn how to throw strikes. This is never going to work. And then there you go. He learned how to throw strikes. Also, I just learned his middle name is Tyler. His hmm. middle name is Jonathan Tyler Lester. We're, okay. almost, we're, we're, basically, we're basically the same, you know? <laughs> it was meant to be. It was meant to be. It was meant to be. It was meant to be for him to be a Red Sox pitcher. Um, this is a very different tone and a very different uh, conversation that I wanted to pick your brain about, John, which is uh, the Nationals and what's going on with Juan Soto's brother and how Washington is going about signing and uh, getting Soto in the organization. I, Based on what you've read in the reporting on this, how does this story make you feel? So... I, I got to admit, just for for Foley, the minor league stuff, prospect stuff, is never really my a thing I pay much attention to, especially not signing news. Like, for for the most part, do not care. Like, especially when it comes to the international signings, nine out of ten of those guys you're never going to hear about again. You know, so for the most part, I, I just don't really have any interest in it. I'm not a scouting guy. I've never been a prospect guy. I don't. You know, well, it's not about the prospect guy. The... It's about the fact know, that he's know, 16 just... and he can't right, sign until it... January 2023. And I don't know. It's those variables that, for all me. That was just a, all of that was just an interest to say that like I'm not fully up on the conversation around this because I know there has been an increasing conversation around the ethics, morals, and legality of quote-unquote 
signing these guys when they are both not legally allowed to be signed and also are literally children. I mean, we're talking about 14, 15, 16 year olds. I mean, Robert Poisson was uh, one of the big ones in that regard. He was signed when he was 14 out of uh, out of the Dominican Republic by the A's, I believe, or by the Twins, sorry. Or no, by the A's, by the A's. I was right the first time. Um, I mean, there is nothing remotely ethical, it feels like, about any side of Dominican baseball. Or, sorry, about the Dominican scouting world, about how these kids are found, how these kids are, are signed, how these kids are trained, how, you know, the whole culture of Buscones and the package deals that happen and how basically throwaway a lot of these kids essentially are because the turnover rate is so high, because the failure rate is so high, because the washout rate is so high, and because these kids can be signed for very, very little money. I mean, most, like, yeah, a guy like, um, you know, like I remember the uh, the big one was um, uh, what was his name? Michael Enoa way back in the day when the A's set a signing bonus record with him for somewhere in the neighborhood of three or four million dollars, I believe. Mm-hmm. But most of these kids are not signing for that. Most of these kids are signing for like fifty thousand dollars, you know, because that is that is pennies to a, a major league organization, but a life changing sum to some of these kids who grew up in abject, like unimaginable poverty. So there is a deeply exploitative aspect of the entire thing that I think even beyond or even even beyond the question of, you know, is it ethically or morally right to come to a contract with a 16 year old, you know, who's not really for as much as I think Elian Soto has preferences and has um, a direction he'd like to follow and, and has a agency in his own choices. He's still a 16 year old kid. You know, these the decisions are being made fully by him. They're being made by a whole cadre of people. And it's always a question of I think in Soto's case it's a little different given his background and given you know the presence of his older brother. But for a lot of these kids, it's who ha whose best interests are in mind here? Who has the kids' best interests in mind? Are they going to the place that's right for them where someone will actually take care of them? Or are they going to where their particular buscon or agent or whoever it is has the best relationship or can get the most money for them? So to that end, like, I don't know, everything that surrounds reporting and news surrounding international signings and the Jan- and was the January signing deadline, which I believe is now July, I think is what they've changed it to in the wake of all the COVID interruptions. I, I find it just generally kind of gross. Like I, the, the scouting aspect of it, of like evaluating these kids is, is its own thing. Like, I'm also not, I don't feel terribly cool about that, but that's also something you could talk about here in the States with stuff like Perfect Game, where it's like, do we really need to be putting a scouting eye on like 13-year-olds? That's really, really strange. Can't we just let them play baseball? Slightly different, but the thing for me in the Dominican is just the fact that, you know, whether whether it's unconsciously, by accident, or deep, or directly on purpose, major league teams take advantage of the severe poverty of the Dominican Republic they take advantage of kids who are not educated, of families who are not educated, uh, and who are in desperate financial straits. They take advantage of basically everything they can down there because that's how the that's how I mean major league teams are businesses and that's how businesses operate. They they cut corners, they take advantage of loopholes, and they 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 take or they they make the most of what leverage they have. And the leverage is entirely with them. These kids have no leverage for the most part. Yeah. Elian Soto is unique because he's Juan Soto's brother. Mm-hmm. Like he can't like teams can't just shove him around or do whatever because Juan Soto will come at them. 
if this kid's name were Elion, I mean, if he weren't if he weren't Juan Soto's brother, what what power does he have? What right. protection does he have? To, to me, that's the thing. It's we're putting kid or the baseball teams are putting these kids in these situations. Leaving, I mean, leaving aside the illegality of of coming to a contract with them, which again, I know the Nationals have not formally signed him to a contract because they legally cannot. But but coming to an agreement for something that can't happen until January twenty twenty three, and the Mets I mean, I and the Nationals the, fighting over this kid, it's just well, I guess the way you can flip it's that weird. Is, is this not similar to the way that college football and basketball recruiting operates with like the scouts and rivals system and commitments and five-star grades and all that? That's fair. Like, like, I mean, I, I mean, I know it's obviously not fully the same again, because what, you know, the levels of poverty that exist like countrywide, the Dominican are just not, I mean, there are places here in the United States that are about not that far off, but at the same time, like it's that same thing, right? Where you have these schools fighting over kids from the age of like 13 and 14 forward. Yeah, that's fair. It's I mean, just, I, I, this is—I mean, this is just the inevitable result of what happens when a profession, when you turn a sport into a professional profit-seeking endeavor, which is that—and then this is part of baseball. Everything that's happened in baseball as a whole, I think, especially in the last twenty years, is you look for more and more ways to find whatever advantage you can and and take advantage of however many things you can. Right. And invariably, that's going to lead to well, how early can we actually identify the kids we want to sign? Mm-hmm. And then that leads you in, invariably because you can't sign them until they turn uh, 18 into the or yeah 18. It invariably creates a black market. It creates an underground market where these deals are made and they have to be made in a in an illegal fashion because well they can't be done. I mean like these laws exist for a reason and it is to protect these kids as much as possible. That's kind of the thing that gets me is when you're making these under the table agreements, you know, the informal signings. Who has that kid's best interest? And also, what is that kid going to do for the next two years? Like, so he's working with you, but you're not paying him? How does this work exactly? It is it is a loophole. It is a loophole that they use to get the kid under their eyes, away from other scouts and evaluators, so that they can keep him entirely to themselves, with no regards, really, as to what that means for him, you know, or whether or not necessarily even, obviously, he wants to be there. But, I mean, part of it, too, is just, it is, it is, essentially finding an investment and protecting it it's just the grossness of we're talking about a, an actual human being you're not like not a, a stock or something so no i i don't like any part of it it is very weird especially to me the way that like especially mlb reports on it as if it's news when it's right like, that that to me is a very very strange thing how mlb reports on on international signings but at the same time, it is an inevitable part of the way the industry exists. And until there's an actual serious drive among the league to reform the international signing structure beyond doing what you know the owners want and just creating international drafts, which is will fix some of those problems, but probably create whole new ones and then leave others completely untouched because it's still the same exploitative system. Right. Yeah, until that changes, I, I don't think you know, that is just an inevitable part of it. It is just a gross part of it that I, I just personally just really have no interest in, in really engaging with because, yeah, I, I, everything that concerns the, the, the path from youth sports or kids playing the sport to professional sports, I just find so distasteful and wrong. I understand it is the it is the bedrock of how this all works, but like I just find it really weird to like scout thirteen year olds or to make a commitment with a sixteen year old like they're children. You know, they're this is so messed up that this is how it is. 
talk to any football coach like I, I i obviously talk to a lot of them and know a lot of them pretty well but like that's their biggest pet peeve is like them coming early and then like even just right now we're getting rid of senior years for a lot of kids where it's like okay go ahead and make your nil money like forego your senior year go to ohio state for and enroll early make a million and then transfer or do whatever but like forego that last year of your high school experience like prom everything else uh that's it you're no longer a kid you are now a uh, full-on professional and uh, good luck you are 17 years old yeah, and, like, I understand, that like, for some of these kids who signed, probably a great majority of these kids, they are getting into a better situation than they probably were in already because a lot of these academies that these teams have do stuff like teach them stuff and give right. them, you know, a stable place to sleep and live and, you know, and meals around the clock and physical training and, you know, actual, like, once the teams get, once the teams get, like, legally have these kids there, like, I... Full full caveat, full disclosure. I you know I, I'm not as well versed on any of this as I would like to be, but like my assumption is that from there things are pretty good beyond the usual path of like if you burn out or break, then the team just discards you like trash. But they do that to they do that to everybody, so it doesn't make it any better, but it does just make it part of the reality. Anyway, the issue for me is more just like yeah, like you said, it's just we are dealing with children ultimately. That these are kids, you know, they they are. It is just so weird to me that they are in, that they we are doing these like we're talking contracts with children like they they should I don't know it I under I understand that this is both the way it is and that like there are ostensibly people who have these the kid's best interests in mind and that the kid does have agency for himself it's it just still it's it just still there's some I I could I can't necessarily articulate it but there's just something about it that I just find so kind of gross about the entire thing that it's like why. Why can't this just wait? Like, why? I think to me, it is also just taking away the agency of the kid. Like, if you sign him at 16 and all of a sudden he has a major growth spurt, which obviously happens between 16 and 18, or he gains three miles an hour in his fastball and he goes from an 89 average to 92 at 18 years old, all of a sudden, way more teams are going to be interested in him. But he doesn't have the opportunity or the option to exercise essentially his free agency and choose his team because he's already made this informal deal with one team. And if he breaks that, well, who knows? Maybe they're going to talk shit behind his back. Maybe that'll damage their relationship with his Buscon or his agent, which was probably telling him, don't do that. Don't screw me with this team. Maybe they were part of a package deal and they don't even get a say in the matter. And the team just lucked into by paying paying $10,000 for someone who could have asked for $250,000 this time around. That's the other part of it. It's just inherently unfair to ask someone to abide by what is essentially an illegal, non-existent contract. But that's what these teams essentially do. To a 16-year-old. And that that is like, that I think ultimately is what gets me the most. That it's like these kids should have the freedom to pursue what they want to pursue without having to worry about whatever, again, illegal, non-existent contract was drawn up between the team and their Buscon or their agent or whoever else was in charge. You know, give them the freedom to pursue what they want to pursue. I mean, you already saw that with Soto. Soto was already previously committed to signing with the Mets. And now he's already changed his mind and he's going to join the Nationals. I imagine in part because of his brother. But, like, again, just also reinforce the fact these are teenagers. Teenagers change their minds all the time. Like, let them have that freedom. Let them be teenagers without having to make them feel like they're already part of some, like, hyper-elaborate European soccer academy training system where they pluck the kids out of out of their towns at, like, 10 years old and make them play soccer forever. It also just seems kind of cruel, but, I mean, that's, I guess if you love the sport, it doesn't really matter. Anyway. That's fair. Um, John, before we get into the Detroit Tigers, um, yes, your old friend, 
the man who got all of the money, all all of the money from the Boston Red Sox and was a part of that uh, a big time trade uh, with the Dodgers not too long after. But Carl Crawford, Carl Crawford, his Hall of Fame case. Jay Jaffe uh, talked about him in uh, this week's edition of his case. Uh, we talked about Justin Morneau on last week's pod, if you want to go check that out. But what do you make of Crawford's uh, Hall of Fame case laid out by Jaffe? Yeah, Crawford, as with so many of the guys who end up being one and done on the ballot, is just one of those dudes who both the career was not long enough and the peak, neither the peak nor the career were long enough. In Crawford's case, the peak was pretty good. I mean, you know, if you're if you're a baseball fan of a certain age, which is to say you and me and folks around us, like you remember Crawford on the on the, the then Devil Rays and Crawford on the Devil Rays was probably the best athlete in the sport. Yep. Like I know coming out of Houston, um, he you know, he was a, an absolute monster uh, in like three different sports in high school coming out of Houston. Football, like God, like the dude could have played, could have done anything he wanted to. He's one of those dudes where it's, it's, you know, you still see them crop up in the game every now and again. Like, you know, the, those dudes who like Byron Buxton, I think is, is the perfect example. A guy who was a, a football star uh, growing up where he grew up at, in Mississippi, I believe, you know, a guy who played, you know, every sport could do any sport he wanted was just hyper physically gifted. And that was Crawford for like, he was a real, like, and people forget to, I think he had a lot of power in his prime too. He was a real peak power speed guy. Um, I always remember too. He just he cracked a million triples all the time because he had so much speed. He was a great center fielder because of all that speed. Of course, the problem is those guys who are built on speed like that. Once they start getting hurt and once they start aging, that that just falls apart, and that's invariably and inevitably what happened to Crawford. And a lot of I remember a lot of hamstring and soft tissue injuries that just kept him off the field all the time. Obviously, there is what happened in Boston. I genuinely believe that that was just that was not just a combination of of buying in on basically the decline years of a guy whose cliff was always going to be really bad because of what his, his tool and skill set was because Crawford was also never a play patience guy. He was never a dude who drew a lot of walks. He was never a guy who was particularly patient at the plate. You know that his skill set was always going to be a, you know, really serious, had really serious collapse potential. Once, once the speed kind of started fading and once the injury started hitting, I also just think it was a really bad culture fit. Like, (laughs) I hate saying it because I am I'm a Boston sports fan, but it is just the reality. Boston is not a good place for for minority athletes. It's just not. It is simply not. It is not a place for a black ball player. I think we've seen that repeatedly in the past, that there is a level of discomfort that black ball players talk about when it comes to the Red Sox that doesn't really seem to exist with other teams. And I think also the weight of the expectations because of the contract that was given to him probably didn't help. So... I've moved past like I I was I remember as a as a young youngish Red Sox fan like just being so furious at Crawford just because it seemed like there was a point where he just gave up. In retrospect, I can completely understand why he gave up. There was like he, that whole experience just seemed absolutely miserable. I mean, Jay mentions this piece that you know Crawford has. I think the thing that annoyed me about Crawford was he just would not stop talking about how much he hated Boston. At one point, it's like okay, man, we get it. You didn't like it there enough already. But I can also understand that it really seemed like it was exactly the wrong place for him. He had a nice little bit of time with the Dodgers, um, but then obviously injuries cut him short there. He has dissolved into some very, very, very concerning legal stuff too, which is obviously off the field, but 
Uh, I do find it fun that this is now the first Jaws article, um, probably the first baseball analysis article I can think of, where Megan the Stallion is actually <laughs> like relevant to the proceedings. Um, yeah, I mean, even if Crawford had the numbers, I think everything. I think I agree with Jay's point. Everything that's happened with him legally in the last few years has been just should be deeply disqualifying. Uh, this is I small take. I get not small space for a take. I'm starting to think that the off-field stuff that happens in a guy's, like, either during a guy's career or after, unless there is some really good expl- explanation or kind of or reason, should be part of what we what we think about when it comes to Hall of Fame voting. I know this is obviously part of what's happened with Omar Vizquel's share of the vote plunging because of the horrible things he's done. Obviously, that's part of why Schilling isn't going to get in because of the awful person he is. Um, I imagine that is part of what has probably kept some people off the Andrew Jones vote because of the domestic violence allegations uh, against him. I mean, these things do, these things happen and they do matter. And it's like that, you know, obviously baseball has a lot of shitty people in it, and there are already a lot of really shitty people enshrined in the Hall of Fame. I mean, does that mean we have to just keep enshrining them? Regardless, like that stuff aside, Crawford didn't have the, the career you need for the Hall of Fame. It was both too short, not not long enough a peak and yeah, he will, he will be one and done, but boy, what a peak he had for a bit there. He was the only thing you cared about on the devil race for a little bit of time. He was really the only thing about that team worth watching for so long. He, he should, he should get some kind of, well, maybe he shouldn't because he seems to be not a very good person, but like there should be some kind of recognition, at least of that, that for the longest time for this absolutely dog ass franchise, he was the only good thing about it for like, five or six straight years. Yeah, that's fair. Um, am I a doofus for not uh, putting two and two together with him and JP Crawford that they're cousins? Wait, I didn't know that either. Okay. I'm glad I'm not. Alone I never, I had never looked at JP Crawford and thought, Oh, I wonder if he's related to Carl. Right. I just figured that it's like they're yeah, Crawford's a relatively common name. I feel like so. Just, Same. Yeah. Well, yeah, never, they're cousins. I never, I never thought about that. Well, it makes sense. Cause JP Crawford is also a fast and very good defender. So, <laughs> That's, that's not fair, but it's like, oh, well, I can kind of see it now. <laughs> um, uh, Carl is a little bit of a better hitter than JP is, though. Yeah, I would say. I would say so. But uh, you know what's weird is JP was actually, uh, I mean, more, uh, just a more highly touted coming out of high school than uh, Carl. I mean, first rounder, Carl was a second rounder, I think. But Yeah, um, well, I think, I, I imagine, I wonder in part if the commitment he had to the University of Nebraska to play football played any part in that. Hmm. Um, because... I, mean, I always feel like it's those guys like who are first round talents, but I'm going a little later because teams are worried about how much it's going to cost to buy them out of their commitment, especially for someone who can be a two sports star who can very easily get into football. Because like, I think it was one of those things where it's like I'll let Jeff Samarja where it's like, no, football is a legitimate option for him. He's legitimately good at it. Um, I just I don't know if he was good enough at it to have like, you know, created a. Obviously, he didn't create a Samarja situation where he was able to sign a major league deal or all of what the A's were offering Kyler Murray, but. Um, I, I do wonder if that played a part in it, but I wasn't obviously not paying attention to the draft at that time. Was, uh, when was he drafted? 97 or not? 97, obviously 99. I just, I just read Jay's piece and I've already forgotten. Uh, either way I was in like fourth grade, so <laughs> I wasn't really keeping up with this stuff. There you go. Um, well, we're going to take a quick break for a message from our sponsors, but we'll be right back to talk some Detroit Tigers.
All right. We are back here on the Chase Thomas Podcast, where I'm still joined by Mr. John Taylor of Fangraphs.com. Go support Fangraphs.com today. If you have not already done so, go become a member and support all the great folks over there. John, the Detroit Tigers. Um, They've already been busy this offseason, this winter, rather, uh, before everything got shut down with the lockout. But uh, Javier Baez, a Detroit Tiger, there was some suspicious dining activity that was being monitored uh, <laughs> with their manager and Carlos Correa. Um, they have been in the gutter for for so many years now. It's been it's been tough uh, for them to climb their way out of the AL Central cellar. But there's a lot of optimism, I think, uh, in Detroit at the present time, especially comparatively to where they've been uh, over the last few years. That like this is uh, the big spending uh, winter, and this, that, and the other. It's it's interesting to see the tide beginning to seemingly turn uh, with Detroit. But when you look at their season last year, how it ultimately unfolded, and uh, just their young pieces, their veterans, and everything else, what uh, what did you make of the 2021 Detroit Tigers? So I think with the Tigers, what you're seeing is, is you're starting finally to see uh, the seeds that were planted during their rebuild and with all their high draft picks and with the farm system they've been uh, very diligently building. You're finally starting to see some of that start to sprout. Obviously, last year, you, they got Casey Mize and Tariq Skubal and uh, Matt Manning all up in the majors at the same time. They did not. Uh, they did not pitch all that consistently, or in the case of Manning, particularly well. He was hammered pretty badly in most of his starts. Uh, Mize and Scoobal were pretty up and down, but there were you saw the you saw the flashes of what there is there. In particular, Scoobal has. Uh, I, I really like his stuff. Uh, Mize obviously has the the pedigree of what he is. You know, I, you're also starting to see. You know, some of that emerge on the offensive side, where I think things were a lot slower. Akil Badu, obviously, really nice rule five pick that they made. Uh, the big one is Spencer Torkelson, who I think has a legitimate chance to make this roster out of spring training if the Tigers feel that way. Um, if only because there is a pretty big hole for them at first base that they don't really. The, the, I mean, I think Jonathan Scope got most of their time at first base last year, which should tell you what a disaster that position was just kind of overall. So, and and definitely, I think I think Torkelson has a real shot there. Obviously, the other major big prospect they have offensively is Riley Green, who is. Also, I think has a pretty good chance to make this team. Probably not at a spring training, but eventually. Um, where exactly he'll play will be interesting to see because I do think, you know, for as much as I, I like the I like the Eduardo Rodriguez signing, I like the Javi Baez signing they made. I think that this team, it, it's a similar vibe to Kansas City, but not as dramatic. I think this team is better than Kansas City. I don't I don't have any questions there, but I think that there are still some places where they're they're either waiting for for in-house options to show up and or make themselves present or they otherwise just don't really have they, they have just haven't really solved that particular issue I mean, shortstop is the one i think about or thought about before they signed baez where i figured you know Car- carlos correa would make the most sense there i still think they can do that i, I don't think it's going to happen i mean they'd have to move Baez a second and figure out what to do with scope but you know the outfield has been a problem for this team for a while i Still not terribly in love with it. Uh, Badu obviously has great tools. Robbie Grossman is a, is a very underrated player. But I think when I look at this roster right now, I see a, I see both a fair amount of upside, but also a fair amount of, of like floor. This is a really uh, big hack in lineup. This is a lineup with a lot of strikeouts in it. 
And this is a rotation with a lot of potential downside if guys get hurt or if, because they're really relying on young guys to, to develop. You know, the projected rotation right now is Mize and Scooble and Manning and Tyler Alexander, who's been a reliever for the most part. And then obviously beyond him, there's uh, in the minors, they have Alex Fado and they have Joey Wentz, who they got from the Braves. But yeah, there, there's not really anything in the way of veteran backup here. I think, you know, you look at what, what pitching they have, they really do not have anything other than the young guys they've already been working with. And on the one hand, I don't think the Tigers would be very well served by just doing their usual thing and just giving one year $7 million deals to whatever crappy like mid-tier veteran they can find. But I do think this is a team where I, Carlos Rodon would make a lot of sense. At least one more stable, reliable, semi-dependable pitching option. Because I think right now that that is a real potential problem spot for them. The bullpen, too, I, I don't really feel great about. There's not a lot of consistency or known quantities in there. A lot of upside in guys like Gregory Soto and the the transformed Michael Fulmer and and whatnot, but yeah, there, there's I think there's still some holes here that keep this team more in the more in the conversation for 500 and a very dark horse playoff contender than any real threat I think to the White Sox. Yeah, I just they're just such an interesting unknown. Like I just I am so curious to know how real they're spending uh, predictions. Are. like i'm so excited when baseball theoretically resumes to see what else they do because that just kind of came out of nowhere that they were like nope we're getting the they got the itch and they're they're going to they're going to go for it they're going to go after korea they're going to go after bias whoever and that kind of commitment it's just it's so fascinating because they do have some young pieces like you mentioned especially in that rotation that are uh interesting but I uh I don't know. The AL Central is winnable. It's not like the the White Sox have a stranglehold on this division cuz especially when you consider just what their record was against uh teams above 500 this past year. Yeah, and I do think like they're for for as much as, you know, it feels like there's some variance in the lineup. There's also not like you look at that lineup last year, nobody it doesn't really feel like anybody played over their head. It feels like the, there is a decent floor here and that there is you know, a real opportunity for them, especially when you consider that like they are going to get obviously 19 games against the Royals, 19 games against the twins, 19 games against Cleveland. Um, you know, none of them who project to be really any better than Detroit. I think maybe, maybe Cleveland, but I'm really not sure about that. Um, you know, they're going to get an opportunity to play teams that are on their same level, if not worse. And for as good as Chicago, Chicago is not a perfect team either. And Hey, there's plenty of opportunity there as well. So, yeah, I mean, there there is a real opportunity here for Detroit, and I, too, think that they have more that they're probably going to do once the lockout lifts, if only because I think, you know, there is probably some extra offense they can add, and I definitely think pitching is, again, something they should be focused on for whatever is left out there. Maybe there's some trade they can make. But, yeah, to me, it just feels like this is an incomplete roster in part because they just didn't get around to doing whatever they wanted, everything they needed to do before the lockout. But I think you're right, too. That it's it's going to be interesting to see exactly how much the Tigers do end up spending, because that very much was the vibe that was they came into the offseason with, which is Detroit's going to be a big spender. Detroit's going to make a lot of noise. Detroit is ready to compete now. And certainly Eduardo Rodriguez and Javier Baez raise your wins floor for the for the present. But that doesn't really feel like the kind of big splurge offseason I think we were all expecting them to have. Hmm. Well, what do you expect them to do? Who else do you think when you look at the market, when you examine what else is out there for Detroit, who else do you see as a as a possibility to add to what they've already done? 
I think definitely, I, I think definitely a guy like Rodon makes a ton of sense. Um, bullpen wise, the trouble is I feel like most of the good relievers are off the market at this point. Let me let me take a really quick look and just see if there are any names because like that bullpen is really a problem. Like I, I Gregory again, Gregory Soto, and Michael Fulmer are great, but everything from that point forward is a whole lot of like four and a half ERAs, five walks per nine type stuff. Right. You know, it's it's not a bullpen that fills you with any confidence. And Detroit's no longer at the point like Kansas City is where they can look at a bullpen, see a bunch of bad pitchers and go, eh, who cares? None of our wins are going to matter. And this is a good place to develop some guys and see what they might have to offer. No, Detroit, if they are actually serious about contending, needs to care about the bullpen that they have. Um, so let's say, I mean, let's, I'm just going to take a really quick look and see what's out there relief pitcher-wise who's still available just using the handy, uh, let me take this promotional opportunity, handy roster resource for agent tracker on fangraphs.com. I mean, if you can convince Kenley Jansen uh, to come to Detroit, maybe that's something, although I, I don't necessarily like the idea of betting on his continued decline. But after that, I mean, you're, you're talking about you're talking about guys who certainly have upside, but also are probably more middle relievers, you know, with maybe seventh inning upside. You're talking about guys like, Adam Adovino, Joe Kelly, Richard Rodriguez, Tony Watson, uh, Brad Boxberger, I think, has a, a, a serious amount of upside. He's a very good slider that I think some teams should get him. Give him. And then, but beyond that, then you're talking about um, more like middle relief guys, even toward the sixth inning, like Chris Martin, Hunter Strickland, Keith Hembry, Archie Bradley. I mean, there are some options here, I think, but in terms of like, in terms of relievers projected to finish over one war next year, currently available on the free agent market, there are seven of them. Mm. One of them is, Je- is and one of them is Jesse Chavez. Like it, it is not a particularly deep market of relievers left. So in Detroit's case, I don't know that that is that is to me I think a real weakness of theirs that I, I really don't know how they figure that out. Um, the other thing I guess would be you know if they feel like there are any starting pitchers out there who make sense for them. Again, I, I know I mentioned Rodon because I, he is at this point the best non Kershaw pitcher available in the market, only because I also still think Kershaw goes back to L.A. Again, but beyond that, it dips really, really quickly into, you know, into not a whole lot left. I mean, we're talking about, you know, you go from Rodon and Kershaw to, I mean, I could maybe see a guy like Yusei Kikuchi making sense there as a back of the rotation option. I also can imagine that maybe Detroit just wants to let those young guys work. And maybe they feel like this is going to be closer to, I don't know, maybe the general feeling in Detroit is a little is a little colder than what we're feeling out here, that this team is like, yeah, we can be good, but we're not quite there yet. We need to see what these young pitchers become. They're going to be the key. So we need to give them as much time and exposure and innings and reps as possible to see what they actually are. I can understand that. I think there's still probably room to sign a guy like a, you know, like a Kikuchi or a Michael Pineda or, or something like that. I know they got rid of Matt Boyd, who just clearly seems like he needs to be somewhere else at this point. But I wouldn't I wouldn't. I wouldn't think that adding a starter would be the worst idea for them, but the truth is they just, there's not a whole lot left on the market that really looks all that great. We'll end on this. Who is the one player that we haven't mentioned that you're most excited about seeing in the Detroit Tigers uniform next year? I mean, I don't know if I'm excited to see Eddie Rodriguez in a Tigers uniform. That's going to be really weird. I, mm. I loved Eddie Rodriguez on the Red Sox. Um, he, it's funny. We talked about Lester. He, I was, he always kind of gave me that Lester vibe. I mean, beyond just the lefties who, who threw hard, but just that sense of like, I'd seen it happen before. It's like, it'll happen. It can happen again. Like the stuff is there. The, 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 the pedigree is like, everything is there for this guy to be the next John Lester. It didn't quite happen as much for a variety of reasons. 
injury, um, the unfortunate uh, COVID infection that cost him the entire 2020 season and, uh, you know, clearly had some effect at least at the beginning of 2021 and throughout the season. But overall, like, I, I loved his time on the Red Sox. He was a ton of, he had a ton of upside. I remember he loved all the strikeouts he brought. So I'll be, I'm really excited to see him. Because I, th- I think the opportunity is there for him to become like a Robbie Ray style, like number one pitcher. He has the stuff. He has the ability. Like, I really am excited to see what he can do as the clear number one guy in Detroit. And I think people are going to be, I think a lot of people probably when they saw that signing were probably a little confused. I don't, I don't think a lot of people know who Eduardo Rodriguez is. He was never a particularly big name or star on, in Boston. But I think people are going to be surprised with how good he is. Like once they get to see him on a regular basis as a, you know, as the locked in number one guy, I, I, I really do think people are going to be surprised by how good he is. All right. John Taylor, always a pleasure, my friend. We can uh, follow you on Twitter at J.A. Taylor. Go support the good folks at Fangraphs.com if you've not already done so uh john next week cleveland guardians what do you say let's do it let's talk about the the cleveland jose ramirez they should just call themselves that the ramirez i don't actually hate any of that we we, the ramirez the ramirez yeah the ramirez um i'll allow it i'll allow it john taylor i'll talk to you next week sounds good All right, we're back here on the Chase Thomas podcast where I am now joined by someone who is watching along with me a Preds team that is good, Brian Baston. Yeah, yeah, I think they're actually pretty good. Um uh thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thanks for being here, man. Um you're a writer at On the Forecheck, so one of the best uh, National Predators blogs that you can go check out. Uh so go make sure you've uh, you go check that out if you have not already done so. But I am uh, I'm excited to talk to you, man, because this Preds team, everything I heard, everything I read before the season, this is a rebuilding year, rebuilding, rebuilding. This is uh, this is going to be tough. And instead, they're just good. Are you a believer? I am now. Yeah. I mean, you can't help but be at this point. I mean, they've they've rattled off win after win. I think they're I think uh, I want to say six, three and one, I think, in their last 10, something to that effect. So, I mean, it's. They've been, and it's you know, it's multiple times this season that they've had streaks like this go on. So I mean, they're in the midst of a five-game winning streak. They haven't lost this this calendar year, so that's something to put a feather in, especially uh, after last night and the the huge game against Colorado. Well, yeah. So they won five straight. What have you noticed primarily in this five-game win streak that stood out the most to you? Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention UC Soros and his just insane ability to to stop pucks. Um, I think they gave up. In the two games against Vegas and the Kings, I think they gave up a total of like 93 shots against, and he had only given up four out of those. So, I mean, he's been standing on his head. You know, he's been known to start a little bit slow to seasons, and he's actually gotten better this year, you know, in his second year as a, as a full-time starter. But he's been he's just been exceptional. And the one weakness he had in his game last season was uh, his goaltending at on the PK, but he's cleaned that up very, very well. And he's very well in the, in the midst of, you know, in the Vesna consideration as, as the best goalie. Does that surprise you? Did you see that coming before the year? Uh, yes, I think so. I think uh, it didn't surprise me too much just for the fact that his five on five uh, goaltending last season was phenomenal. Best in the entire NHL. He just had, you know, uh, penalty killing goaltending kind of dragging him down. And, 
I didn't think it could get too much worse. I think it was a lot of, you know, just little things strategy wise, the the defense in front of him helping him out too. And so he's cleaned that up and it was with many, as many penalties as Nashville takes, you know, him being good at the penalty kill, you know, cer- certainly helps, helps the case out. Why do you think they take so many penalties? Um, I think part of it is uh, Coach Hines uses those bottom lines, that the herd line, as they call them, of, of Colton Sissons and Tanner Janot and um, uh, Yakov Trenin. He, he uses them very specifically, usually starting them at the beginning of the game against the opponent's first line. And so he wants them from the, from the get-go to play a very physical game. Um, Another part of it is is they've got a lot of guys just willing to drop the gloves and, and fight, you know, guys like uh, Mark Borowiecki and, of course, Tanner Janot. Um, you know, he they've got guys that are willing to get in there. And if they've got the confidence to know that they can do that to set a tone and UC Soros and the, and the PK units have that has have their back, and you know, don't want to give up a goal. Then, yeah, you've got that confidence to do it. and You're going to do it more often. Do you think this is a sustainable run to this point? Do you think this team being atop their division is sustainable for the rest of the season? Um, I think I think so. I think that they get on these runs and, you know, this isn't the Nashville Predators. You know, the, the motto has been for quite some time now that, you know, play well enough and goaltending can bail you out. And I think they are playing well enough. And I think for once, the forwards are starting to produce kind of on a level to where UC Soros can give up, you know, a game like last night where he can give up four goals and they still can outscore a team like Colorado. I think we're seeing really great seasons from from Philip Forsberg and Matt Duchesne, even though both have missed some time with with injury and illness. Um, and, and you're seeing Roman Yossi just continue to be Roman Yossi and, and be amazing. <laughs> Interesting. So who do you have as your MVP for the team to this point in the season? Oh, that's a rough one. I mean, I think Soros is going to be definitely probably the first choice. I think that, um, you know, he's he's been I think he's been held at under two goals or less um, and something like 80 percent of his start so far, which is fantastic. You know, and yeah, there's some games like, again, a, a team like Colorado you know, they had, you know, 30 something shots against him last night and he only gave up four, which is usually a lot. But, you know, he could have given up a lot more when you got guys like McKinnon and McCarr on the other side firing away. Um, you know, you've got to be on top of your game. And I think really they've they've lived or died with him, but they've actually, you know, the forward play and, and the scoring support has really given them t- uh, space to breathe. Hmm. What uh, what game has surprised you the most where it was like, OK, I feel like I have a better handle on who the Preds are this year. Was there one game that stands out the most to you to this point? Um, I think last night is probably hmm. the, the a really good, cause it's, you know, it's, it, you know, it reminds me of the expectations before the season. I, you know, I didn't think this was a team that was going to be bad or a complete rebuilding season, but I, you know, I figured they were about at the level they were last season where they kind of just make the playoffs, you know, at the, at the deadline at the very end of the season. Um, and so, you know, I kind of expected them to be there thinking that, you know, if they just make it to the playoffs, that can be considered a successful season. Um, but you know, it, it's that the expectations with that is, you know, they're going to struggle against the good teams and beat the bad teams. And they faced one of the best teams in NHL last night in Colorado. And they did it by playing good defense. They, you know, they were tough. They were physical. Uh, they they managed the puck well, which was really great. I think they only had five giveaways compared to Colorado's 12. And so, you know, they're blocking, they're they're hitting. And and now they've got that finally got that complimentary piece to to score when they need to, and um, it's great when you got your stars like a star like Philip Forsberg out. A guy like Matt Duchesne can can step up and give you a two goal night. 
I like it. I like it. Uh, who on just to get a little bit more negative or just who has disappointed you to this point? Is there one player in particular that's disappointed you the most? Um, you know, before last night, I would have said Luke Cunning hmm. um, before his, his two goal night last night. But um, yeah, I mean, he's been playing. He's been getting top line minutes with with Ryan Johansson and Ellie Tolvin and back when the line was all put together. And, you know, he's he's providing really good support. He's not doing anything bad that's standing out too much he's just his impact is not really on offense he's not creating you know uh i think i read a stat that matt duchene had only scored uh five goals while he was playing with philip forsberg even though that line with him and mikhail granlin has been so spectacular this season um but that's because matt duchene you know when you've got a guy like forsberg he's also looking to make that perfect pass and to set them up and you know with the Conan, he's he's doing that somewhat but it you know not at the level that that you would expect out of a top line player but he's he's a kid so i think there's some time to let him grow and develop hmm who which young player are you most excited about going forward um you know the popular pick would be would be Tanner Janot with mm. you know leading all rookies in goals uh he's just been fantastic this season but i think even more impressive and i think if there was a calder you know best rookie of the year award just for the team i would put it for alexander carrier because he you know he'd been on the milwaukee admirals for quite some time you know longer than you would expect um out of a guy drafted where he was um but he's really come on last season tail end of last season and you know being a full-time starter this season he's been really really fantastic you can see where he kind of has a blend of the skills of you know the puck carrying ability of, of roman yossi but he's very good defensively and pretty tough like a matthias Ekholm. so you kind of get that in-between guy and i think you know, having him be able to be there and to, to, to move the puck has also eased up a little bit on the pressure that's put on Dante Fabro as, you know, as another young guy in that defense core. And, you know, he's played minutes with Roman Yossi, Matias Ekholm, you know, against the highest competition. You know, he's usually playing against the first and second lines, and he's been extremely good this season. So he's been kind of the, the biggest uh, the biggest surprise. And, you know, I just think his game is so consistent that you know, he's probably the most valuable rookie on the team. Is there one game that you have circled uh, in the next few weeks that you're most excited about? Ooh, let's see here. Well, while I'm looking at the, uh, at the schedule, um, I would say probably the next the next week, the, the slate of three games there, it's the first game I'm going to cover in person in probably a month and a half, and I'm getting real itchy. So it'll be great to get in, get back in the building uh, you know, pretty soon. But let's see here. Um, I think... You know, I like these matchups against against teams like Colorado. I'd like to see how how Nashville does against the the Wild this season. The Wild have been very very good, and I'd like to see. You know, they've got their own little core of, of former Predators. Like, well, used to be Rem Pitlick, Pitlick, but he got waived. Um, but Kevin Fiala and uh, oh shoot, I apologize, I'm completely blanking. Uh, Freddie Goudreau, guys like that, um, and they've been very very good. You know, of course you've got the um, Oh gosh, the, um, I'm blanking on his name. Uh, Kaprizov, mm. you know, and he's he's really electric. And so I think you know those two teams, along with Colorado, are going to be battling for that top spot in the Central. And, and since we you know we haven't seen seen the Wild yet, I'm really excited to to get into the the meat of that series against them. Awesome. Well, who um, when you look at the division and you look at where they sit right now, who are you most afraid of catching up and giving the Predators problems from the rest oh. of the way? Uh, I would say Colorado still. Mm-hmm. I think I think they're just there's such a 
incredibly explosive team and you've got so much talent um in guys like mckinnon and mccarr and landis gog and all of those players i mean they've been a you know kind of one of my favorite teams to watch when i'm not watching predators games mm-hmm. i absolutely hate them when they play the play- predators but <laughs> um you know th- they're really fun to watch. I think them and I really, you know, I'm really excited to see what Vegas does, you know, on the other side of the, of the conference, you know, getting Jack Eichel in the lineup now. Interesting. Um, when you look at the defense though, why do you think the defense has been as good as it's been? Um, honestly, I think that, you know, the, the philosophy that, that coach Hines has kind of put in is that he was going to allow the other team to take shots and they usually take a ton of shots against, but they want to make sure that they're forcing things to the outside. These are low quality shots. These are shots from the point, things like that. And I think the defense that gives them more room to, you know, make more mistakes because those players, you know, with the puck are a little bit further out. Um, and you know, they also have that, that ability to activate real fast, you know, get, once they get the puck and try to get up the, you know, get a breakaway. And so opponents have to respect that, you know, anytime Roman Yossi's on, on the ice with you, you know, you have to understand that, you know, within five seconds, he can be on the other side of the rink before you know it. And so that, you know, you have to play back a little bit and be careful. And I think that's really, that plays to the strengths of what this team has been and has been for a long time. And I think that, you know, John Hines is really really good and creative at, at utilizing effectively. Huh. I like it. Well, um, is there any kind of stat about the Preds as of late that just really uh, piqued your interest? Uh, yeah, actually. Um, one of those stats is, um, you know, just how good they've been in closing, mm-hmm. uh, closing games out, you know, especially a situation like last night. Um, you know, the last two seasons, so last year's shortened COVID season, and then so far here, they're 15 and four in overtime or the shootout. And that's about 92% of uh, winning percentage, which is really second in the league, only behind Vegas, who's just a little bit further up. Um, you know, that's that, that's really impressive. That whenever they get to overtime, their their three on three play is so good that they've you know to win 92% of your games, you know, in overtime is pretty impressive. And, uh, you know, going hand in hand with that is, is Matt Duchesne, you know, with the, with the game winner in overtime last night, he's actually, uh, first in the entire league in overtime goals and uh, tie for third for game winning goals. And so, you know, we've seen teams of the past where they get a lead and then just sit on it and, and play really soft offensively and, you know, lose games because teams would come back against them. But in the last couple of years, Nashville, you know, if they get a lead, they hold it and they hold it very well. Awesome. Awesome. Well, what is, uh, give me a prediction for the rest of the way. How do you think this season unfolds for the Preds? Um, I think they finish, I think they finish second in the central. I think, uh, Colorado is still is going to go on a little bit of a run towards the end and and get the top spot there. But I think that's going to still have them at the, you know, top three, as far as record goes in in the conference. And I think they can win, they can win one or two playoff series, uh, you know, with the talent they have and against the competition they've played, I really think that they can hold their own, uh, past that. We'll have to see, you know, if, you know, if the, if guys, all the Forsbergs and, uh, Duchesne, uh, players like that can, stay hot and not get not go be streaky then yeah i mean they can they can hang with anybody in the league all right how do the good folks keep up with your work and all the great stuff going on on the forecheck yeah you can follow me on my twitter it's at brian baston that's b-r-y-a-n-b-a-s-t-i-n um you can see me at on the forecheck also um we do 
uh, three or four times a week. We do over at the Renegades of Puck. Uh, we do a video show, uh, formerly a radio show, but now we're gone, gone online, which has been great for us. Um, and you can find that on YouTube if you search for Renegades of Puck. And I do, you know, uh, nightly stats, you know, things like I, that last little bit that I had just uh, talked about, like things like that after each game, something that's not just this is how many points a player got. And so, you know, do a little bit there. And, uh, you know, uh, time may tell. There's a couple things in the works. You may be able to see me in a, in a couple other places uh, soon, hopefully. There you go. There you go. Well, that's exciting. Uh, all the best, sir. Thank you so much for making the time this evening. I, I very much appreciate it. And uh, we'll have to do this again soon. Yeah, definitely. I've been, been a huge fan. I was honored that you asked me. We're back on the Chase Thomas Podcast, where I am now joined by, let me check my notes here, uh, the sports renaissance woman. Hey, hey, hey. What's going on? (laughs) Nothing much. Watching Seinfeld. (laughs) What's going on with you? Oh, man. We've never done this. No, not in a long time. I mean, we have, but there's been other people a part of it. Mm Mm-hmm. But, you know, we're doing this now. Like, we are, for the good folks, uh, keeping track or keeping score at home. Uh, the sports renaissance woman and myself are in two different rooms in our home uh, doing <laughs> doing this yeah. particular podcast in different rooms because my old mixer uh, was a multi, multi-port mixer for microphones, but uh, it died and I had to get another one and I uh, foolishly just got a, a one-port mixer, so I just have my one mic in the in the studio so i cannot do that and you suggested just grabbing the mic and going back and forth and uh just having a conversation that way can't even stand being in the same room with me do you Uh, understand how this sounds (laughs) just kicking me out of the room that's Mm -hmm. fine Mm -hmm. fine. is that what it is okay cozier in here anyways you're not wrong you are in a more cozy position than the than the studio and you got the dog got cleese the dog our mascot for this very podcast Oh, she's the mascot? She's the mascot, right? She's famous. Did you hear that, Khaleesi? You're famous. <laughs> she cares a she's lot. She's too focused on her bone. She is. Um, but really that, going after it. She's a, she's a bone girl. Um, you're on this very podcast, Sports Renaissance Women, because you and I are almost done with Yellow Jackets, the hit show on Showtime that we have both just... Uh, gotten extremely invested in because it's uh, great and uh, awesome. And what do we do every Sunday? Where it, it, it's like the inverse of Chick Fil A, where you have you hate that feeling of oh I could go for some Chick Fil A today, and you realize it's Sunday. It's the opposite with Yellow Jackets, where you're like oh I could really go for some Yellow Jackets right now, but you realize it's a Thursday. But then on that Sunday afternoon, you were like hey it's Yellow Jackets Day. It that, that I think it the, starts on Saturday. On Saturday, it's like tomorrow's Yellow Jackets Day. Mm-hmm. It's great. Like yeah. I think I look forward. I look more forward to Yellow Jackets than I do uh, even some sporting events, which is which is high praise. Uh, but it's just that good. Like I, it's that addicting. Um, well, I think you look forward to the intro. I've never seen <laughs> anyone more excited about an intro of a show um, than you get. <laughs> and every time the intro plays, it gets stuck in my head for like two days. So. I guess that's a good sign. Well, it's important to have intros in general and catchy intros, no, as not. you know. 
you okay. know <laughs> you need it because you might forget what you're watching and uh, a good intro goes a long way because i don't think a show can be healthy and grow and uh really blossom the way it could if it doesn't have a a, a 10 out of 10 intro it needs that uh it needs that intro I feel like you just splash the name up on the screen and we're good to go. We all know what's happening here. Yellow Jacket. You know, that's... And I would like to take credit for this as well because I was the one that scouted this series and made us watch it, okay? I saw a bunch of girls involved and I was like, oh, this is going to get catty real quick. I was sold. Okay. I'll give you credit for that. You were also right about Righteous Gemstones where... Yes. We have to we have to dive into that one because I I just <laughs> that's probably the I, I don't know do you think that's the most I've audibly laughed watching a show or a movie uh, between you and I I feel like it is I think so we even rewound we like rewound that part when uh, they were trying to do the drop off the money drop off <laughs> and they ended up running over <laughs> running over people yeah <laughs> it's a good it's a good show highly recommend it. Well, we're not talking about that right now, although we are diving into uh, season two very soon. Um, Yellow Jackets, though, it ends season one. It's got picked up for season two, but season one ends this upcoming Sunday. And I want to get your perspective. How do you think it ends? I'm pissed. (laughs) I I want more. No, um, I think (sighs) I have mixed feelings. I think more people should be dead by now <laughs> um, they, because they've built up so much in nowadays reality um, that there's so many secrets and such a scandal. And I just have not seen that much scandal go on. I'll be honest. Um, so I, I'm really thinking that this upcoming last show is either going to be jam-packed with a ton of just jaw-dropping moments. What was that? Rewind. Hold up. Who is that? Like, maybe a stranger comes out of the woods sort of moments. Or I feel like I'm going to be very disappointed. They're going to wrap up, like, maybe one question that we all have and then wait for season two to drop bombs. I want some bombs now. I don't know what they're going to do. I it, I mean, the way you put it of just, uh, I want more people dead. It, it is kind of wild just how many people are still <laughs> alive on this show. Like there are a lot of people alive. And based on what we've seen in the flash forward, um, not a lot of folks make it off or make it out of the uh, Canadian wilderness um, from, from the Yellow Jackets team. And we have a lot of unanswered questions, but because it got picked up for season two, there's less pressure to, uh, tie up those loose ends and that's a good thing because I am here for multiple seasons of this program but I do I do wonder how much meat they leave on the bone here but I do feel like this past week and this is something I wanted to ask you is just that like we wrapped up uh, the blackmail situation um, to an extent now that yeah. we know that um, she's going to keep this light going with her husband and they're going to try and find a way to navigate uh, this lie, to get around it. And uh, it's messy. Like everything is messy in the flash forward. No one's life is going well in the flash forward of the big three. And of course, Misty being on the outside looking in there, but I, uh, I don't know. I feel like Mm -hmm. like Misty's life is going great. 
She's never been more involved. <laughs> she's got purpose. I mm -hmm. think she's really thriving right now. Um, I was going to say that the other day. I was like, this is her heaven. She's been waiting for her moment, and this is her moment. I think, okay, we're allowed to do spoilers, right? Yeah, I mean, it, that we should okay, mention at okay. the top, like, if you're listening to a Yellow Jackets recap pod, <laughs> that's something that we're going to discuss. I'm not going to dance around what's happened to this point. So if you have not already caught up to episode nine of season one, you might want to hit pause and go binge watch the show. There, there you go. This is definitely the top. We're not eight minutes in or anything. Um, <laughs> I, I think that one death that we're going to get is is Misty Misty? It's mm -hmm. Misty, right? I think it's Misty, I right? Yeah. I think she's gonna kill the lady that she's captured. I really do. I feel like they set us up to think that she's cool with her and gonna let her go. I think that I think that woman's gonna end up dead. Um, You're saying not Misty not ends up dead, but the person that she has captured, the private right. detective or whatever. Her captive, yes, mm. and um, it's not the death that I want. It's not the death that I need. And I'm, I'm now. I'm going to be upset if that actually does happen because then I called it, and it's like, you know, enrich the plot a bit. But I do think that's going to happen. I see crazy in her eye. I think Christina Ricci's doing a really good job of playing crazy. Um, I, I think that's definitely going to happen in this last episode. So that's one prediction that I have. That lady dies. For sure. She's gone. She, um, I mean, she's I kind of outlived her purpose, right? Like her whole thing was, I, I guess, well, there's another part of it, which is who emptied the bank accounts. I guess that's the big thing heading into the finale. I feel like we're going to get an answer to who emptied uh, his bank account, mm -hmm. right? Like that feels like you can't drag that one out. And she already blackmailed okay. the other uh, former uh, AA sponsor uh, into getting the information. So I feel like we're going to find out who emptied his bank accounts, right? Okay, well, maybe not. I don't okay. know that we find that out this week. And I would like to bring up another point that mm -hmm. I don't know if I haven't been paying close enough attention, but are we sure that these are the only ones that lived off the island? I really think we're going to see someone come back. Hmm. Who do you think? I, uh... Well, we know we know popular Miss Popular Girl is dead because that very uncomfortable uh, dinner with the woman, her husband that she's cheating on, and then the dead girl's parents. Right. Um, that one. Um, so I don't think it's her. I don't know. I really don't. But I definitely think someone else is alive. And maybe they're the ones that are killing people. I wanted to see how high my voice could go just then. Mm. <laughs> I was really pushing it. Maybe they're the ones that emptied the bank account. Um, I just, I think, I think someone else survived. I think they either like ran off on their own on the island and everyone just assumed they died, but they made it somehow. Um, or these main girls just haven't brought it up and mentioned it because homegirl's just off doing her own thing in the world. Hmm. I don't know. Um, it, it feels like we were being led to believe that a lot of stuff is far more complicated than it actually is. And that like, there's other people at play. And it's like, oh, who is this guy? Who's this mysterious guy? Adam, who uh, has just uh, taken Shauna by storm. And they have this hot, heavy love affair and this, that and the other. But like, it turns out that no, that he was literally just a guy who just lied about where he went to college. And uh, 
That was it. That and was. Who, who hasn't lied about that? I felt real bad for him. That's that sucks, right? One little teasy lie, and this woman has how many lies? You know, mm-hmm. talk about mm-hmm. judgment. Just real, real stabbing you for nothing energy <laughs> coming from her. Well, not for nothing. Like, this is what, yeah, folks, don't get involved. Well, this is what happens. <laughs> I, I mean, this is, uh, I mean, he, he did have. Not for nothing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, he, he made a choice to, he made a choice to, uh, uh, you know. Is this about adultery? Here's yeah. the thing. That's not, no, that's no. Cause she also made an adultery choice. He would have had to have gotten stabbed by the husband. Right. For your point to be. Uh, no, the whole point is that, that it doesn't matter either it. way. You can never, it, it can get volatile in a hurry and you don't even know who to, who to watch out for. As your future wife, I like that you do this dance, <laughs> but um, just as an innocent bystander, I can right. say, man, I don't think you should have stabbed him. <laughs> uh, I don't think that's, I don't think that's always the end to an adulterous affair. I'm, just gonna go I'm not saying it always that. is, but I'm saying that's what you're playing with. That's uh, that's the game you're playing, Adam. You you knew what you were walking into. You are, you are, and I've seen many uh, forensic files, and uh, just overall investigation discovery television has taught me that when you are cheating, that's whew, you're gonna die for sure, for sure. Also, if you have a big life insurance policy, and don't listen to that part as. Um, don't listen to that. Get as big of a life insurance policy as you want, Chase. <laughs> Follow your dreams. Live your truth. I don't know what to do with any of that. Um, <laughs> who's your favorite character? Well, now, now it's public, so mm-hmm. uh, public record. On me, that's right. <laughs> who's my favorite character? You played yourself. My favorite character, I think I already spoke to this, but my favorite character is uh, Misty because I uh, she's given me crazy. She's been giving me crazy since day one. She really hasn't wavered at all, and um, I'm digging her uh, her really weird put on like a, a onesie jumpsuit and gloves to go down and handle lady. Like mm-hmm. she's looking like she knows what she's doing. Um, in the whole I kidnapped a person situation. So I'm liking her. I liked her even when she was younger and just completely delusional about that gay man being remotely interested in her. Um, Also that he's like 30 something and she's 15 and is like thinking that's going to work in front of all of her friends. Um, Oh, and she spiked, she spiked everyone's shit with shrooms. That's amazing. Yeah. She's my favorite. She's definitely my favorite. Who's your favorite? Mm, who would you guess? Um, I think you hate Shauna, who is the aforementioned adulteress. I think you like um, the one that eats dirt. And uh, <laughs> is it Teza? <laughs> I do like her a lot. She's good. Uh, she's fascinating. To her as a werewolf multiple times. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, <laughs> I think that, yeah, probably it would probably be Taza. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce her name. Is it Taza? Because they say, I don't know. I think it's Taza. Okay. Uh, we, I, I mean, for as much of the show as we've watched, we're just butchering these people's names. So. Well, to be fair, I whenever I see Juliet Lewis on the screen, I'm just like, oh, what's Juliet Lewis up to? What's uh, Christina Ricci I, I, up to? <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Oh, yeah. That was the other part that I loved. Mm-hmm. When she just, when she just pummels, uh, 
Juliet Lewis to the floor and, and snorts all her cocaine. Like, it wouldn't have done just as good to just throw the cocaine. She right. had to snort it all. Like, what was that? <laughs> They're a great buddy cop uh, spinoff movie waiting to happen. I would watch that with Christina Ricci and Juliet Lewis just uh, doing crazy stuff with one another. That'd be fun. I I think they both um, are giving a very natural born killers vibe in this series, and I would I would pay to watch it again. Yeah, let's get them on a spinoff. You want them to be cops? What's happening? No, not cops. Just like those two are just like a mess, and they're just forced to like run through i don't know i'm not laying out the whole movie right now i'm not doing that this is the yellow jackets podcast i'm not setting the scene for an entire entirely different show here don't put me on the spot sports renaissance woman that's true um i will say oh, but my favorite mm-hmm. oh, go ahead no go go ahead go well i was gonna say when you said favorite character i was just mm-hmm. assuming we were talking about like the big three but i really love that crazy bitch lottie mm-hmm. um <laughs> Because she just convinced everyone, spur of the moment, that a man was a deer and to chase him in the woods with some... But was uh, that the shrooms? Was that the shrooms that they had taken? Potato, potato. It it was a little of both, okay? You know know she's been missing a couple of screws since they uh, crashed and she has been without her medication. Right. Um, I'm having a trouble... I'm having a hard time and some trouble... uh, identifying what exactly her ailment is because i think there was a flashback and all it was was that she could sense the future Mm -hmm. and i'm like that's kind of a good gift but now she's acting crazy cuckoo nuts bananas well maybe the future is pretty bleak so that's why she's like i'd rather not know more about this future she sees everyone dead that okay but you have a theory right, that you don't think uh how the show opened with cannibalism (laughs) you don't think that's what actually happens Oh, I did have that theory. Okay, yeah. Um, Do you think we get that in the finale? Because it seems like they're leading towards that. Okay, I would have to go back and watch the opening scene very closely. But what I was saying last week was I felt that a lot of the vision that I was getting from that opening scene was them like in very similar attire as to what they were wearing in this past episode when they're chasing um travis through the woods and so i thought like those scenes maybe got crossed crossed wire somewhere and they were gonna play it off as like that really didn't happen and it was just like a close call or someone's hallucination while they were on shrooms so that's where that's what i was thinking i'm still not fully convinced that they eat someone although although let's face it uh, you know, when you're stranded that long, I feel like someone's someone's got to be eaten. Who's your, your pick? Who do you think it is? Who did they eat? I still think it's Jackie. You still think it's Jackie? I can't get over it. That girl, she's wild. Uh, her just uh, <laughs> get, copping an attitude when you're stranded uh, <laughs> with the winter fast approaching and just to really go scorched earth on everyone around you that you need to keep you alive. It's a bold take, bold choice uh, and well, uh, decision making. Well, she with someone's uh, mm-hmm. kind of boyfriend too. Right. So that That's what could, I'm saying. There's just know, a, there's a collection of bad decision making by her. I think there's a lot of resentment towards her before they even get on the island. She right. strikes me as the type of girl that like everyone was like, Oh, you're so popular and I want to be you. But if you got her alone on a deserted Island, you're like, man, you're not that great. Like, look at you. 
Mm-hmm. You're, you're not even she's pretty doing helpless anything. yeah she's also not eating mm-hmm. so like how long can you survive without eating like she may just die do, do you think they kill someone and eat them or do you think that someone dies well we saw someone run through the woods in the night and then fall into the trap and then they were roasting something or somebody it looked like in that opener okay well we did see that mm-hmm. um so you're okay but do you think it could be a combo of both? Like, not to quote a favorite movie or anything, and I won't, but like, Blood in the Water Sharks sort of deal? Um, the mm. movie was Deep Blue Sea. Um, that, like, maybe someone dies and they're like, man, we're not going to let your body go to waste. They eat them and then they've got this taste for human. Right. Is this it's always sunny in Philadelphia episode that I'm rehashing here right now. Yes, it is. That's what I think maybe happens. Hmm. So a normal death and eating situation, and then they've got a taste for it, and and then they kill somebody. Maybe I don't know. Um, well, are you excited for the finale? I am excited for the finale, but I'm also sad for the finale as yeah. all things. Um, after it's over, then we're gonna be sitting here saying okay, what's the next show? And I don't know that we'll find something exciting enough to get us to appointment television like this one does. I know. They get us every week. Uh, email us at chasedmostpodcast at gmail.com if you have any suggestions on what we should uh, get into next because Flight Attendant did not work for our, for you and I. We were, we were pretty out. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, uh, just some general issues with the setup there. Yeah. I mean... We can talk about that another time. But yeah, I mean, not a terrible show. Not a terrible show at all. Just not not an appointment television show. If mm-hmm. it came out, you know, one episode a week, we wouldn't have followed it. No, no, I would have been out for sure. Yeah. For, for yeah. sure. Um, well, that's all I've got. I'm excited. I'm well, really excited for Sunday. It's gonna be a lot of fun. It's gonna be a wild ride. I think we should live stream it. <laughs> I don't need people to see how into the intro <laughs> that I get. That people we're not we're not joshing you here when it comes to how much I love a good TV show intro. So I don't know. I kind of want to keep that full blown piano hands, full blown <laughs> piano hands over there, just <laughs> trying to make the music and everything. Okay. Well, as someone who listens to primarily soundtracks uh, throughout the day and evening, um, that's. Yikes. I, <laughs> It's 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 catchy. I told you. I start singing it in my head. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's dark and catchy. We should look up what band that is. Uh, it seems like an obscure band. What if it's not? And now everyone's judging me. They're like, man, that song's been out and mainstream for like ten years. Never mind. Did I take back what I said. Cut the episode. Cut that part off. <laughs> Cut that off. Too. I'm not cutting it off. Uh, Sports <laughs> Renaissance Women. This is fun. This is fun. Come in the other room now. <laughs> All right, that'll do it for today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast. Thank you again to John Taylor, the Sports Renaissance Woman, and Brian Baston for coming on today's edition of the podcast. It's greatly appreciated, and I hope you guys enjoyed uh, what they had to say on today's episode, talking all things Preds, uh, Yellow Jackets, and, uh, you know, all things MLB. So thank you again to those good folks for coming on the show. And also, Make sure if you liked listening to today's episode of this very podcast, you go ahead and give us a five-star rating and a review on the 
uh, podcast app of your preference. Uh, make sure to email us uh, at podcast at gmail.com and uh, make sure to follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash chase a double underscore Thomas and like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash chase Thomas writer. Go visit chasethomaspodcast.com today if you have not already done so. SportsRenaissanceMan.Substack.com Uncle Derek, how'd I do? Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah.